Hello and welcome to The Beethoven Files, episode 41. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to focus on two great piano trios. The three earlier piano trios from Opus 1 had been remarkable in their own right. Fresh and exuberant, even to the extent that Haydn had warned Beethoven against publishing the third of those, the C minor trio. But the two piano trios we're going to talk about today, both composed in 1808, are in almost every respect even more remarkable. We'll deal with the more famous of the two, the trio in D major, the Ghost Trio, at greater length. Beethoven composed this work while staying with the Countess Ertodi, a student of his with whom he had become close friends and who played an important role in securing a continuing stipend for the composer, assuring him of a steady income aside from the vagaries of publishers' payments and the occasional benefit concert. As a student, the Countess was quite talented, and Beethoven helped her work on the piano part for this trio, writing out fingerings which he subsequently asked his publisher to reproduce in the first edition. This is not to suggest that the piano part was in any way simplified. In fact, there are technical challenges here for all three instruments which surpass anything found in the earlier piano trios. But at any rate, Beethoven himself was the pianist for the premiere performance, given with two long-standing colleagues in December 1808. The work is, of course, best known for its nickname the Ghost Trio. Nicknames for classical compositions in this period, when not assigned by the composer him or herself, often reveal very little about the work itself. In this case, the nickname was applied by Beethoven's student Czerny, who, some years after the fact, stated that the slow movement brought to his mind the first appearance of the ghost in Hamlet. While an interesting observation, it doesn't really tell us much about the intentions of the composer himself. But there is some indication, or perhaps suggestion, and one somewhat more closely connected to Beethoven himself, that the composer was seeking a dark and otherworldly expressive quality for the middle movement. This hint appears in the contents of the sketchbook he was employing at the time which contains in close proximity sketches for the piano trios, but also for a witch's chorus for a then-projected, and later abandoned, opera on Shakespeare's Macbeth. But this is hardly an airtight connection, and most commentators are hard-pressed to generate any further connections to either Hamlet or Macbeth for the other movements. By the way, I'll say more about Beethoven's operatic adventures, including his one completed opera, which exists in two competing versions, in a later episode. Those adventures, not always pleasant ones for Beethoven, had certainly commenced by 1808, but didn't really come to fruition for a few more years. On to movement number one. It's in D major, 3-4 time, marked Allegro, Vivace, and Con Brio. The first phrase begins briskly and confidently, played fortissimo by piano, cello, and violin in four octaves. It begins with a descending four-note scale fragment, starting on the tonic note, interspersing eighth notes and sixteenths, which we'll call motive A. This motive absolutely dominates the first phrase. It's repeated three times, at a higher pitch level each time, in keeping with the changing harmony beneath it although upon repetition the motive morphs into four descending staccato eighth notes. As you heard, the steady flow comes to a sudden stop and a surprising F natural is interjected and held for two measures. What could this mean? Well, it could mean a sudden switch to D minor, but it doesn't here because the F natural is soon matched up with a B flat, and listeners familiar with the style would probably hear that combination as the skeleton of an augmented sixth chord, especially when it resolves down by half step to the dominant chord in A major. That dominant chord is actually prefaced by a tonic chord in second inversion, 
which acts as a common delaying tactic, but the effect is the same. So now, starting on the dominant chord, we encounter the second phrase of the first subject, and it's very different. We have quieted to piano, and the cello does the honors with this new lyrical and dolce phrase, which unfolds in two measure units. This phrase contains two distinct motives, which we'll refer to as B1 and B2. The first, B1, starts on the third of the tonic chord and moves quietly up a third by step. The second, more distinctive motive, B2, falls a major sixth and then ascends two steps. These two motives combined are just as persistent as the one that dominated the opening phrase, repeating and overlapping in violin and cello three times before being handed to the piano. The piano version, built initially on the subdominant chord, repeats motive B2 three times on different scale degrees, before introducing a new triplet-based pattern mixing scale-wise and arpeggio figures, as we head toward a solid, dominant tonic cadence. Here's the entire first subject. That solid cadence on tonic marks the end of the first subject and the beginning of the modulatory transition. It's based on motives B1 and B2, with both motives altered slightly as we proceed to mesh with the changing harmonies. We seem to be headed directly toward A major, which would be logical as the key of the dominant, but instead a deceptive cadence sends us off in the direction of F major and we stay there a surprisingly long time, considering that the key is alien to the original tonic of D major. But, of course, it's just this side trip to F major that Beethoven might have been setting up when he interjected the surprising F natural in the fifth bar of the movement. At any rate, we do eventually find our way to a dominant chord in the key of A major, and, in fact, that chord is prolonged for several measures, appearing in various inversions in the piano against a stream of legato eighth notes in violin and cello, a stream that begins with a reference to motive A from the first bar of the movement, but becomes a bit more generic after that. Here's the modulatory transition. The second subject almost sneaks in following the emphatic cadence in A major, the key of the dominant. The flow of eighth notes in violin and cello has not stopped, but now has become something of a countermelody against the main melodic idea, which appears in the piano in block chords, the melody played in the right hand in thirds and sixths. It's a simple but highly contrasting theme, its most distinctive element probably being the double-dotted quarter note followed by a sixteenth note with which it begins. The initial two measures are repeated with the melody doubled a third higher, and then the second measure is separated from the first and repeated three times, moving down a step. Then the piano assumes the running eighth note pattern, and the cello and violin take over the melody. What happens next is a little surprising. We're used to sonata form movements with closing sections and perhaps codettas following the second subject. Sometimes these added sections are quite clear-cut, sometimes not. But here, there doesn't really seem to be a clearly identifiable closing section or codetta. After the violin and cello present their version of the second subject, the final bar is extended and repeated with only a glimmer of a reference to motive B2, 
and this against trills in the right hand, which temporarily blur the harmony. But the last few bars are clear enough, repeating the new tonic of A major several times while quieting all the way down to triple piano. Here is the second subject leading to the end of the exposition. The development section begins naturally enough in A major, but just as naturally doesn't stay there very long. Beethoven actually returns briefly to the original tonic key of D major, but soon moves through F major to B flat major, where he remains for a fairly long time over a repeated pedal on F heard in the piano. Soon the repeated F is moved up a half step to F sharp, drawing us into G minor which holds sway for a while. In terms of the themes and motives focused on for this development section, the opening bars of the first subject are the clear winner. The first two bars containing motive A are tossed back and forth from instrument to instrument, very quietly at first, although when we first move from A major to D major, we do experience a dramatic crescendo to fortissimo. At that point, the second phrase of the first subject makes its appearance, the one combining motives B1 and B2. The second subject is nowhere to be found. Notably lacking is its characteristic rhythm of a double-dotted quarter note followed by a sixteenth note. But when the piano right hand begins to move in parallel thirds, it may remind us of the fact that parallel thirds also played an important role in the second subject. But regardless of the thematic ideas that dominate, the beginning of the development section remains fairly subdued and just a little mysterious. Here's the beginning of the development section. But, as you heard right at the end of my excerpt, it does not remain subdued throughout. We jump up to forte, and new triplet bass motives are introduced in the violin and cello, pairing up with earlier motives, especially B2, and as we proceed, those motivic references become shorter and more biting, including those based on motive A. But the tonality eventually stabilizes, and violin, cello, and piano, previously tossing motives back and forth with zestful independence, now join together again, quoting the opening motive of the movement, or variants of it, again and again, as we sweep into the recapitulation. The recapitulation is not an exact duplication of all earlier themes now in D major, and you certainly wouldn't expect it to be at this point. The parts are sometimes rearranged, and some of the most important melodic themes are cut short of their original length. One of the most interesting features is, again, that section which replaces the original modulatory transition. Even as the same motives are employed, the keys visited are different. For example, we run through B-flat, E-flat, and even C minor, before a chromatic twist takes us to the key of A which we assume will take us to the original tonic of D major. But when the second theme actually returns, it appears first in G major, before eventually finding its way back to the original tonic. After the recapitulation, there is a coda, 
one which focuses on the motives from the second phrase of the first subject and which itself toys briefly with other key areas before presenting the final fortissimo cadence to end the movement. But we will move on now to the second movement in D minor, 2-4 time, marked largo assai ed espressivo, and beginning piano and sotto voce. What is it about this movement that struck Czerny and others as so haunting? Here are the first eight measures. It's certainly mournful sounding, especially the opening measures, but what makes it so? Of course, a minor key melody, taken at a slow tempo, which Largo often implies, is bound to be a little grim sounding unless there's a lot of rhythmic activity squeezed into each measure, and that is not the case in the opening measure, where violin and cello in octaves begin with an introductory motive consisting of quarter notes descending down a perfect fourth, followed by an ascending minor sixth. We'll refer to it as motive A1. The last note overlaps with the piano's first measure, which provides four eighth note block chords on D minor in the left hand, and a distinctive dotted rhythm motive in the right hand, which echoes to some extent the shape of the opening motive in violin and cello, and which we'll refer to as A2. The dotted rhythm figure consists of a dotted 16th note followed by a 64th note triplet. Any dotted rhythm figure in a slow minor key context is likely to add to the general somberness of mood given historical precedence, and this one certainly does. As you heard, the ideas introduced in the first two bars return again and again in the first eight measures. Not the exact interval patterns, but certainly the melodic shapes and the changing harmonies which underpin these recurring motives soon become even more ominous, notably because of the full diminished seventh chord suggested in violin, cello, and piano in measures three and four. Measures five and six suggest a relaxation of intensity as they move temporarily toward F, the relative major key. But by measures seven and eight, we have returned to the grimmer D minor. And there we are introduced to a new thematic idea, which begins with what we'll call motive B. It's a more rhythmically active idea, with frequent combinations of eighths and sixteenths, with all three instruments contributing. In the complementary piano and violin parts, it eventually rises up to something of a melodic climax before sinking back down chromatically, only to rise up again. Tonally, we still seem to be in the vicinity of D minor, with special emphasis on the dominant seventh chord in that key. And, after six measures, an unexpected fortissimo climax on a full diminished seventh chord. Here's a little bit of that section, starting in measure nine, with the appearance of motive B.
One of the things that distinguishes this slow movement is the amount of time Beethoven allots to extending or repeating certain quiet and generally slow-moving passages, especially in the piano. He will simply not be hurried in these passages, even though some of them seem to retard even the limited degree of momentum that has been established in the early measures. Here's the passage which enters right after the diminished seventh chord in D minor you just heard, and moves slowly down the scale to end on a repeated tremolo pattern over which the introductory motive, A1, returns in the cello, as does a measure later, A2, in a new variant played by the violin. All of this over a tremolo pattern in the piano, which eventually moves from D minor, first through F major, and then toward C major, as the sinister mood begins to lighten a bit, at least temporarily. We actually remain in C major for a while, violin and cello often trading off phrases built on motive A2, and a little later, moving together sometimes in thirds. But even while we remain in C major, Beethoven makes use of some, if not spooky, at least unusual atmospheric effects, mostly based on undulating tremolos in the piano. For example... That very slowly diminishing interlude leads eventually to a recurrence of the second major theme, the one starting with motive B. It's in C major rather than F major at first, and it's by no means an exact repetition of that theme as it first appeared, really more of a free variation. Soon we crescendo and move to D minor, where we encounter more diminished seventh chords and the return of motive A2 the one with a triplet pattern following a dotted 16th note. Here's a little bit of it. The first theme, featuring motives A1 and A2, eventually returns in D minor, not an exact duplication of the opening bars of the movement, 
The piano takes a more active role, echoing motives here, but again moving toward F major before veering back to D minor. And then the second thematic idea also returns, again in varied form. This is followed by a coda, every bit as eerie as what has come before. It comes after a final statement of the second thematic idea in D minor and a final abbreviated reference to the first. Here is the last part of the coda. It's easy to see what prompted Czerny's reference to the first appearance of the ghost in Hamlet. Of course, he did not imply that Beethoven himself had that inspiration in mind. Still, this is an extraordinary movement with no real precedent, and it's almost impossible to imagine that Beethoven didn't have some such image in his head when he sat down to compose it. So, how do you follow a movement like this? What sort of finale will serve as the capstone for this trio? Well, Beethoven never made any attempt to match the intensity or sense of mystery that characterized the middle movement. There is some quirkiness in the finale, but not really of the same sort that we heard in the Largo movement. The finale is back in D major, common time, and Mark Presto. It begins a little peculiarly with a couple of false starts. The first, only four bars long, is handled mostly by the piano, with the cello and violin entering only for the final two chords, including the final, somewhat surprising chord on F-sharp major, held by a fermata. The opening phrase begins piano, but crescendos to forte by the time we reach the fourth bar. The second false start is introduced after a double bar. It heads briefly in the direction of G major, and concludes on a fermata on A, the dominant of the main key. It too crescendos from piano to forte within its four measures. Both four-measure phrases employ melodic ideas that will play an important role as we proceed. Here are the first two false starts. The first subject, when it arrives in measure 9, is marked piano and dolce, and is related to what we just heard, but is by no means an exact duplication of either false start. It starts with a pickup note on the third of the scale, introduced by violin and cello together, playing in thirds and sixths. The first two-bar phrase supplied with a strategically placed grace note to make it sound even more coquettish is immediately repeated. Then, still primarily in thirds, the melody begins to move up the scale, often in chromatic half-steps, with the cello introducing some contrary motion right before we cadence on tonic. After eight bars, the piano picks up the theme, with violin and cello filling in the pauses with playful little two-note fragments as the piano had done earlier.
Right at the end of my excerpt, you heard a clear-cut cadence on the tonic of D major, and the beginning of the second half of the first subject, marked by a change in texture as the piano inserts a chordal accompaniment pattern. The second part of the first subject draws very closely from the thematic material introduced in the first false start and repeated in varied form in the second. After just eight bars, we hear another emphatic cadence and another change in texture as the piano begins a series of arpeggios and scale patterns in octaves and a new theme based on slower-moving ascending half notes is played first by violin and then cello. This marks the beginning of the modulatory transition, although it takes a while for the actual modulating to begin. We expect to end up in the key of the dominant A major for the second subject, and we will eventually arrive there, but not before the transition takes a surprising detour to F major for a while, which it pounds into our consciousness for several measures before all of a sudden the music quiets, and we find ourselves in A major for the second subject. Here's an excerpt beginning with the second part of the first subject, going into the transition, and finally ending up at the second subject. The second subject, dolce but with a distinctive staccato pattern, is a very modest one, consisting of two similar four-bar phrases. The first features violin and cello, again mostly in thirds, against a bass line provided by the piano left hand. The second phrase is first split between piano and strings. Then the solo cello takes the lead, forte, with a repeat of the first phrase with more elaborate piano accompaniment. And the violin takes the second phrase, taking us back to the tonic of A major. This is followed by a repeated cadence figure based on the last two bars of the second subject. It ends unexpectedly on a dominant seventh on F sharp again and trails off with some final references to the opening measures of the movement. After moving briefly to B minor, we soon head back toward A major. Here is the second subject. The second subject is the last new idea of any great distinction in the exposition. It's followed by a closing section. You heard the beginning of it, along with that little fortissimo burst at the end of my last excerpt. It's a fairly generic one, in which references to the melodic motive featured in the second false start can be heard, and which includes another extended and rather rambling solo passage for the piano. That passage transports us once again to F major, but we do end up back in A major when all is said and done. Here's a little of that closing section. When discussing this movement, more than one commentator has suggested that it's been influenced, or at least colored in some way, by the remarkable slow movement that comes before it. Various sections of the movement have been pointed out as evidence of this, but I'm only going to play one. It comes in the coda, and it's a quiet pizzicato section which touches on some surprisingly remote keys. 
Here's the passage in question, which, after some wide-ranging tonal exploration, comes back home to D major, references some familiar themes, and heads for the robust final cadence. Is there anything particularly spooky or mysterious about this passage? Perhaps, but I'm not confident that it was Beethoven's intention here to summon up the mysterious aura of the previous movement. Yes, he's wandering pretty far afield tonally, B-flat minor for a little while, but Beethoven sometimes does that in the final part of a coda section, just before he pulls it all together and heads back home to the original tonic. And yes, anytime we encounter pizzicato in an unexpected minor key context, we may wonder a little about the composer's intention. Is there a subtext here? Maybe, but in this case, I think Beethoven is just engaging in one of his many tongue-in-cheek passages. In fact, just about the entire movement falls into that category, with its false starts, fermatas on chromatic chords that don't resolve the way you expect them to, tunes that border on the trivial, etc. This tongue-in-cheek quality is arguably all the more compelling because of the mysterious and somewhat otherworldly quality of the slow movement. But we shouldn't be surprised that Beethoven has chosen here not to continue that narrative, but rather to play off against it. We'll move on now to the second piano trio of Opus 70, not as well known a work, certainly not blessed with an intriguing nickname, but a fine one nevertheless. It was composed following the Ghost Trio in 1808, again dedicated to the Countess, and is set in four movements. Here we turn, as Lewis Lockwood has stated, from the demonic to the human. This trio is not without its interesting quirks, but there is much here that seems to be on the verge of the familiar, perhaps an affectionate backward glance at the chamber music of Haydn and Mozart, although not a reproduction of those earlier works. The first of four movements begins in E-flat major, common time, with a marking of poco sostenuto and dolce, and an introductory melody which, if not self-consciously serious, is certainly pensive in nature perhaps even austere, its dolce marking notwithstanding. It opens with a four-bar phrase begun by the cello alone, three descending quarter notes followed by two eighth notes ascending to a dotted half. The second two bars a variant of the first two down a step. Beginning in measure two, we encounter a quasi-canonic texture. The violin enters with the first two bars of the theme a fourth higher. And after two more measures, the piano comes in up a ninth, with the left hand taken from the same melody starting on the second bar. So that thematic idea from the first measure is actually heard four times in a row in the first four bars, at which point we're securely in E-flat major. But in the fifth bar, a new pattern is introduced in all the voices, alternating quarter notes and eighth notes, and a crescendo and a trill that seem to take us to C minor. Here are the first eight bars.
but the tonality remains fluid, at least for a while. More motives are introduced, including one especially notable triplet-based idea, which you heard right at the end of my excerpt. And there are flashes of urgency along the way, and the piano even takes off for a brief flight of fancy all on its own. So the introduction is by no means pensive from beginning to end. But we're going to jump ahead to the start of the exposition proper, marked by a double bar and a change in meter to 6-8 and a tempo marking of Allegro ma non troppo. The first theme of the exposition proper begins with an ascending octave leap in violin and cello and features a prominent trill. It swings along cheerfully in direct contrast to the introduction theme, with the first two bars marked forte and mostly triad-based, and the second two marked piano and characterized by sweeping scale lines in contrary motion. After four bars, the piano takes over the melody with the strings, sometimes doubling it and sometimes providing countermotives. Here are the first eight measures of the exposition, ending up back on the E-flat major tonic chord. That's the first part of the first subject. Next, we hear a transition based largely on motives from the last measure of the first part. That leads to part two of the first subject, still in the original tonic of E-flat major, a broader theme in longer note values, played forte, starting on the third scale degree and initially moving up in half steps before eventually making its way down an octave from the starting point. It appears first in the cello against a repeating chordal pattern in the piano, and four bars later is heard one and two octaves higher in violin and piano right hand. It's then extended over a tonic pedal by the introduction of a new swirling theme in sixteenths marked by periodic sforzando accents. Here's the transition going through the second part of the first subject. Remember, all of this is still in the first subject area. We haven't really left the tonal space controlled by the original tonic of E-flat yet. But we will now, as the modulatory transition begins, drawing from motives first heard in the introduction. We've seen some modulatory transitions that are lengthy and at times dramatic. But this is neither of those things. It's actually fairly austere with the introductory motive passed from one instrument to another quietly. After ten bars, a gentle trill and an ascending chromatic run in the piano delivers us to the second subject, in B-flat major. It's another quiet but relatively cheerful one, introduced in the piano, characterized initially by two measure phrases of flowing sixteenth-note scale passages, concluding with a poignant little motive in longer notes all of it over a tonic pedal, tonic in the new key. After four bars, the music crescendos and the flowing scale lines are tossed back and forth among violin, cello, and piano. Here's the modulatory transition and the first part of the second subject.
right after my excerpt concluded, we hear a lovely passage which is new in some respects. The texture thins out and the pedal on B-flat disappears. But it's still linked to the second subject, notably its concluding motive, although it's not long before the 16th note scale lines reappear in violin, cello, and a little later, piano. This section has been referred to as a closing section, but it's probably heard more as a varied extension, a very expressive one, of the second subject, with a cadential gesture tacked on at the end, albeit very quietly, which sends us back to the repeat of the exposition. The development section is more notable for its elegance than for its dramatic intensity, but there are some exotic modulations along the way. We actually sneak back into the recapitulation of the first subject, rather than hearing it as a carefully prepared climactic event. Also, the violin and cello show much greater independence here than they did originally and the piano provides a much more active accompaniment pattern of resonant 16th note ascending arpeggios. After another interesting non-modulation, using many of the same ideas as before, but refusing to go to the dominant this time, the second subject returns in a form closer to the original. Perhaps the greatest surprise, which isn't really much of a surprise at all at this point, the final coda reintroduces the original introduction theme, again, after a brief switch to common time. But after just nine measures, we revert to 6-8 and make our way to the final chords, and a conclusion which is perhaps more delicate than we might have expected. The second movement is a clever little double theme and variations, one of Haydn's favorite forms, but rare for Beethoven. It's in 2-4 time, marked allegretto, and begins in the unexpected key of C major. The opening theme, which is often described as dance-like, is marked dolce again, and begins with a pickup figure in ascending thirds in the piano, one employing a little short-long syncopation figure. 32nd note to dotted 16th note, which it follows with multiple combinations of an 8th note followed by two 16ths. These rhythmic motives, especially the opening syncopations, suggest a Hungarian dance style to Watson and others, but in other respects, the melody is somewhat reminiscent of a gavotte, so altogether something of a stylistic hodgepodge. Is this an affectionate and maybe slightly ironic nod toward Mozart? And is Beethoven at this point even capable of referring back to the earlier styles of Haydn and Mozart in a manner that is not tinged with irony? At any rate, the next theme we encounter is very different.
So we flipped into C minor and what is often described as a Hungarian dance. Is this serious and dramatic, or is it just mock serious and dramatic? Are the offbeat sforzando accents just a little too obvious? And the abrupt, albeit very brief, lunge in the direction of A-flat major. And how about the staccato markings? Are they there to add to the sense of mystery or to tip off the listener that the composer is really just having fun here? The variations for the two themes are, not surprisingly, very different. The first is very gallant and rather frothy, and the second more intense, even frenzied in places. But we're going to move on now to the next movement. Movement three, another allegretto movement, although this one adds manon tropo to the tempo marking, is in A-flat major and 3-4 time. Beethoven could have labeled it as a minuet, one with a trio that comes back a second time, but he chose not to. The melody that dominates the opening section is not very minuet-like, but it is very attractive in a naive folk music-influenced sort of way, leading Watson and others to remark on its similarity to the sort of song melody that Schubert would be writing in a few years. And although I've referred to the melody as naive, it's actually rather tightly integrated, with the two initial phrases beginning with similar ascending motion. After 16 bars, we hear a mildly contrasting section, which also begins by referencing the same opening melodic motion, before going on to develop the idea a bit and introduce more rhythmically active patterns. Here is the first part of the first section. Here's the second part of the first section. It begins with the familiar opening leap, this time a more dramatic jump of an octave, once again in the violin, but as the section proceeds, the melodic activity is shared more and more with the piano. The original melody from the first part of the section does eventually return after a rambling chromatic descent in the piano right hand. After a double bar and repeat, the trio or middle section begins. It's more homophonic in nature, the strings and piano trading off four-measure statements, the melody generally undulating gently with stepwise movement. It hints briefly at other key centers and at one point introduces a series of repeated dissonant chords that seem to pause the harmonic momentum for six bars. Beethoven did not invent this sort of appoggiatura-based dissonance, but its effect here is rather distinctive. And even after the series of dissonant chords, he has more harmonic tricks up his sleeve, notably a series of chromatic chords that wander far afield for a few measures before returning home to A-flat and the return of the first section melody. Here's the new middle section theme.
Here are the repeated dissonant chords giving way to the series of chromatic chords that eventually return us to the original theme from the first section. The finale is back in E-flat major, 2-4 time, and marked allegro. It bustles with energy and mostly good nature. Cherney suggested that it was inspired by the observation of a racing horse, and it certainly has many of the earmarks of a perpetual motion movement. That is not to say that there are no contrasting passages or moods, only that there is a steady, unrelenting pulse residing within most of them. We begin with a sprightly melody in the piano, punctuated by piano and string chords, which functions almost as an opening fanfare. When we arrive at what we assume is the first subject, it's actually presented softly and dolce, but it's brimming with suppressed energy nonetheless. The punctuating chords from the introduction return to herald a transition which jumps frenetically from one idea and one dynamic level to the next, stopping briefly for miniature cadenzas for all three instruments. It eventually arrives at a new theme, the rhythm of which is somewhat march-like, but Watson makes the point that those same rhythms may suggest a galloping horse. It is, at any rate, embraced lustily by piano and strings in the unlikely key of G major, at least for a while. Here's the transition going into the new theme. There is also a melodically distinctive closing theme, one which is given a lot of attention not only in the development section, but in the coda as well, where it takes on a particularly noble cast. Here's the closing theme and codetta, which is mostly just an energetic, although initially quiet, drive to the cadence, ending the exposition and taking us back for the repeat. I'm not going to play the development section, although it's quite a lively one, with every theme, including the introductory fanfare theme, getting considerable and very imaginative play. The recapitulation is again a relatively free one, and I've already mentioned the coda. This is a movement of extraordinary energy that makes considerable technical demands on the performer. 
and the entire work is a very attractive one, even if it lacks the distinctive personality of the ghost trio with which it's been paired. That's all for this episode. For the next, we'll take a look at Beethoven's final piano concerto, number five in E-flat major, the Great Emperor Concerto.